Go ahead and take your Bibles and open those to John chapter 4. It is good to see you this morning, Grace Bible Church. Uh, we are in the eighth week of a nine-week series on the fruit of the Spirit. And being completely honest with you, I, I was not... Uh, when Jared and I were just working through the summer and talking through this series, I thought to myself, I'll get through that one and we'll have a really good time. But it wasn't something that really stood out to me, but we felt compelled to walk through these. And it's been really, really, really good for my soul. I'll be truthful. It was Jared's idea. And I have been blessed by getting to walk through these each week and to look at what the Bible teaches us about the fruit of the Spirit and... I've been convicted more than I prefer, so we can just look at that however you would like to. Let me read those to us from Galatians, just so we can hear them uh, and be reminded of what each of these are. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And next week, Jared, I'll be with with you guys, and I get to hear him preach on self-control because I did not. <laughs> but we get to look at gentleness today, and if I'm just being completely upfront with you, the idea of gentleness is really hard to understand. I'm not sure if it's a concept that we, uh, particularly as men, grasp fully, and I don't know if as a culture we even understand it because for whatever reason we have believed and misunderstood the idea that being bold and being gentle are at odds with one another. Uh, there are some quotes on the back of your worship guide if you're a note taker and those questions should help you to process what we talk about today. But some of them stood out to me. One from Jonathan Edwards, all who are truly godly and real disciples of Christ have a gentle spirit in them. Uh, Gary Thomas writes, It's the strong hand, not the weak one, that must learn to be gentle. So we look at this idea of gentleness and we, we see that it is a, a concept that when we have about it, it's almost uh, conveyed or misunderstood a, as weakness. Uh, we look at the word in the Bible and it's actually not defined as weakness. When you break down the, in the, the original language, uh, it means consideration, humility, Meekness And meekness in and of itself is not weakness, though it's also misunderstood. It is defined as strength under control. When we look into our English definitions of the word, some that stood out to me were uh, to calm or to dignify. Ultimately, I believe that we see that gentleness reveals Jesus. And I want us to ask these questions of ourselves today as we look at the life of Jesus and the interaction with Je uh, that Jesus has with a woman in John chapter 4. Uh, do we look and we see the idea of humbling myself? Do I humble myself to interact with others for the sake of Jesus? Do I consider the other person? And do I control my words and, and my actions? Uh, it's unique when you look at gentleness, though, as you read through the Word and consider it in the entirety of the Scripture. First Timothy chapter 6 tells us that we are to pursue gentleness. And I'm not even sure if we understand what pursuit is because when he references pursuing gentleness, he refers to us pursuing gentleness in the way that a hunter pursues game. The thing is, uh, because of the way that our world works, we don't even understand what hunting game in the Bible was like. For us, we go hunting so we can sit in a 
tree and take a nap. And when I say us, I mean you. I don't do that. But when we, that's what we do. Uh, for for people at the in the days of Jesus, when they would hunt, that was really a way to provide for their family uh, meat and something to take care of them. It reminds me yesterday of uh, the idea of pursuing and being pursued in my home. My children have these Nerf guns, and they hurt more than they should. And I don't know why they have them. I don't know who bought this for them. I typically don't buy them things that hurt me or make noise. I try to stay away from both of those. But I turn around and Charlie is right behind me. And when I make eye contact with him, he's holding this Nerf gun that fires this frisbee-sized bullet at me. And as he shoots me, it hits me in the chin. I had no idea that he was there. He snuck up on me. But he pursued me, from what I could tell, all through the house. When we look at the idea of gentleness in the Bible, we're told to pursue it. We're told to chase after it. We are told to look at it and see that there is value there. So if gentleness is all of these things that we've used to define the word, if it means to consider, if it means that we should humble ourselves, if it means that we should have strength under control, can we look at the life of Jesus and see moments where he was gentle, not weak, but strength under control, where he considered the way that other people felt, where he interacted with them with a purpose in mind that was not neutralized by his Interaction. So let's just look at John chapter 4. We're going to look at the story of the Jesus and the Samaritan woman. A difficult text to preach if I'm being truthful with you because we all know the story. John chapter 4. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing but his disciples were, he left Judea and he went again to Galilee. And he had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of to the town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well, and it was about noon. I don't know your familiarity with the life of Jesus, but when we spend time with him in the scriptures, we see. Very often, he is with people. There are moments where he steps away from them, but people wanted to spend time with Jesus. His disciples were always there. And if you've not noticed in our time together, and even in the time when uh, Pastor Brian was here before me, when you look at the interaction of Jesus and the disciples, you notice they're not always the brightest apples on the tree. They regularly say things they shouldn't say, do things they shouldn't do. They are a pretty exhausting crew to be running around with. You read things that Peter says and you just shake your head and say, yay, yay, yay. So Jesus has sent them to the grocery store to pick up some kosher jerky. And while they're on the way to the store, he stops at a well to rest by himself. Who doesn't like to have an alone moment every now and then? Even the most extroverted people like to be by themselves occasionally. And Jesus is by himself at the well, and something comes up. Rather, someone comes up. And as she walks up, we, we notice a woman of Samaria came to draw water. So at this point in history, Jesus is baptizing more people than John. The Bible actually tell, just told us that. He is exhausted, he's thirsty, and he's alone for the first time in forever. And he is at a well at a point of the day when no one should be coming to the well. 
He should not have to deal with any human being. Yet this woman walks up, not just any woman, a Samaritan woman. And we'll even look in a little more in depth in just a moment as to what type of Samaritan woman she was. And this Samaritan woman is going to draw water from the well. And Jesus chooses to interact with her. And in so doing, we see the idea of humbling himself. Because in the world that Jesus lived in, for him to interact with this Samaritan woman, or this Samaritan woman, was a major deal. Because to interact with her was for him to put himself on her level because every Jew everywhere believed that they were better than the Samaritans. If you would like to have some quotes from Jewish rabbis, I know you guys were longing for those for your Pinterest posts. Jewish rabbis would say things like, Let no man eat bread, eat the bread of the Samaritans. For he who eats their bread is as he who eats the swine's flesh. Now, I know when we read swine flesh, we think the Jewish people read swine flesh, they thought, stay away completely. It would make us filthy. It would make us unclean. So, another thing that the Jewish people would pray, as they considered the coming of our Lord, the return of Jesus, the return of the Messiah, rather, Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. This is bold language being used to talk about a people. The Samaritans also had their issues that, as we shared a couple of weeks ago, there were things that they would do to cause Jewish worship to not function well. There was a rift between these two, very much like the sharks and the jets. And they did not get along. They did not love them. They did not care for them. So we see this story of Jesus... As we look into the story of Jesus, she comes up to him in verse 9, verse 7 rather, and Jesus says, give me a drink. Because the disciples have gone to get food. And her response to Jesus, him being in a place to interact with her, was the same as everyone else's response. How is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan. Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. It is inconceivable that Jesus would have a conversation with a Samaritan. It is improbable that Jesus would have a conversation with a woman aside from his wife. It is completely unthinkable that Jesus would have a conversation with a Samaritan woman. Based on everything that the Jewish people believe, Jesus is better than this person. She is a Samaritan, but she's not just a Samaritan. When we read her story, we see that it's worse than that. Because the Jewish people believe that the Samaritans lived on the wrong side of the tracks. And I don't know how you interpret the wrong side of the tracks when you hear that phrase. But not only does she live on the wrong side of the tracks, she has been kicked out of the group of people on the wrong side of the tracks. That's how bad of a situation this is. That's how terrible of a person this is. That's how removed she should be. How how removed Jesus as the Jewish rabbi who teaches and preaches and heals should be from this lady. Yet he looks at her in his exhaustion and says, give me a drink. I think that stands out to me more than anything when I look at this text. Because all of us can put on a good front when we're rested. All of us at the beginning of the day are at our best. 
When the days just got rolling, we've had our first cup of coffee, we've entered into our sanctification for the day, we are there interacting with people, and we can deal with people. Then It's after lunch when people exhaust me. It, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon, 4 o'clock in the evening, when I am worn out. And at the end of the day, Jesus is here in the heat of the day. And we notice something about Jesus that I love in this text. Him humbling himself with it to interact with her had nothing to do with the time of day. It had everything to do with who he is. He humbled himself to meet with her. And Jesus considers her. Verse 10. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God, and who is saying this to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, And he would give you living water. In the Bible, the task of getting water is exhausting. It's very much unlike going to Bucky's and buying two bottles of the Niagara with a squirt bottle top. It is you going through a task of carrying large water containers. This woman is here at this point in the day. In the middle of the day, it's very unlike the rest of the women. They would go in the earliest part of the day, when it is the coolest, when this exercise would be a little less stressful for them. She is here because she does not want to interact with anyone. She wants to be by herself. It, it's, in my house, it's different. We, we, the, but the task of getting water is still exhausting. We've got one of those water coolers from Costco. And you know what I'm talking about. The one that makes you feel like you're a dentist. And, and we have this in our kitchen. And in the grand scheme of world problem, uh, first world problems, replacing the water is the most tedious task on earth. Let me tell you what we have to go through the steps. You have to get a new bottle and carry it somewhere else. You have to wash your hands. I do. I wash my hands every time. You, you wash your hands. You have to remove the old bottle. You have to clean up the spilled water. The spilled water. Water, water, water. You have to clean up the spilled water on the floor. You have to go through every bit of this. It is an exhausting process. But when we look at this text, we see it's much, much more. This woman every day has to go get water for herself and for the home that she lives in. Every day she's going at noon because everyone views her as the most unacceptable woman in the community. Every day this woman is going there at the hottest part of the day hoping to not be seen and not interact with anyone. Every day she's carrying this huge container of water. Every day she's making sure that her family is cared for and you've got a man who's going to tell her that he would give her living water. And you can notice in her response to him that it seems like he's offering something that's going to make this a little simpler. Sir, you have, verse 11, you have nothing to draw water with. And this well is deep. Where do you get the living water? She then throws it into her story. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He, he gave us the well and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her in verse 13, Everyone who drinks from, the water, from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never Get thirsty again. 
In fact, the water that I give will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. This lady is interacting with Jesus and he has met her where she is and is having a conversation about something that matters to her. Yet she is, according to the people from whom Jesus came, the most sinful of sinners. The wickedest of the wicked. The most vile of the vile. And Jesus is considering her in this conversation. Not just her, because we believe the Bible is a timeless truth that speaks to us. Years removed from when John put, these, put this on paper. We believe that the truth of what God says here, for everyone who is away from Jesus that would draw near to Him, He gives you a, a spring of water that, for eternal life. That's what we believe. That's why we celebrate every Sunday. The God in Jesus has met us and He has offered us Himself. But here, in this instance, we see Jesus meeting this woman, the worst of the worst, and He is saying to her, I'm going to give you life. And I believe that should give us a little bit of hope and a little bit of a vision for the people that we interact with every day. In my own strength, I am saddened by the number of people that I interact with and I think to myself, they will never get it. Well, of course they'll never get it. Because I would have never gotten it apart from a supernatural act of God. And the same can be said for all of us. But there is something to be said with what is modeled for us by Jesus in that he meets this woman exactly where she is. There is a gentleness there. A gentleness in that he considers her. He doesn't avoid... This conversation gets even a little ickier, a little weirder if you just notice it though. In fact, the water I give him, we'll, we'll go back to that, will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty because I don't want to come here anymore. Go call your husband. Nobody ever said you can't say bold things. Go call your husband and then come back here. I, I don't have a husband, she answered. You have answered correctly, I don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. But she doesn't leave. The... the choice of Jesus to meet her where she is causes this interaction to stay. Gentleness does not cancel out boldness. Gentleness paves the way for it. Let me give you an example. I've got a couple actually. Gentleness and boldness are not at odds. It holds that gentleness helps your bold declarations to be heard. It paves the way for this bold truth. So we're in Texas, and I understand that there are cowboy fans. Not everyone's a cowboy fan. I've been told that I've got some Philadelphia Eagle fans in the room, and that's who you cheer for because 17 of them are Christians, and that's cool. But we have cowboy fans in the room, and they're in the 90s, that's probably peak cowboy, right? Troy, Emmett. Michael Irvin. 
there, but no one ever talks about one of the most important people that the Cowboys had. They had this offensive line that pretty much would cover this entire worship center. They also had a fullback named Moose Johnson. And Moose Johnson would block for Emmett Smith. Help me out. Cowboy fans, how many do I have? Any, one, two? Okay, great. Where's Danny Keir? I need him here. Well, praise the Lord. So you have Moose Johnson who would block for Emmett Smith. Emmett Smith has made the claim that if it were not for Moose Johnson, he would not have nowhere near the rushing yards that he had. Now the goal of football is to score touchdowns. In the same way that our goal is to see people hear the message of Jesus. But gentleness paves the way for this bold truth that needs to be proclaimed. So not everyone in the room speaks sports ball. So let me give you another example. There's a rule called Maxwell's Rule. It, it comes when you're decorating homes. And it's an 80-20 rule. Has anyone heard of this? I read about it on the interweb. Uh, it, it comes into play. It's the idea that each room should have about 20% of a high color balanced out with 80% of a neutral color. Now, the neutral color doesn't have to be gray or, or beige or, or wood. It, the neutral color can be a, a lighter color. It just has to be neutral so that the bold color stands out. In the same sense, we see Jesus considering the needs of this woman, gently meeting with her so the bold things that he says does not run her off. She doesn't leave. She just tries to do what we all do when people get religious on us. She changes the subject. She changes the subject and because our personal sin is harder to discuss than the questions that we, that we have about things that no one really would say they have the answers to. Go with me. 19. I see that you're a prophet. I see that you're a prophet. But our fathers, they, they worship here on this mountain. But you guys say that the place to worship is Jerusalem. She didn't leave, but she did try to create some distance. Sir, you're a prophet. But you're not my prophet. How much of our conversation with others is filled with that when we do say bold things? I understand that's what you believe and that's your truth, but that's not mine. Sir, you're a prophet. You're just not my prophet. Because Jesus has just confronted her, her sexual deviance. Whatever's leading to that, we're not sure. There is, in the world that they lived in, there are numerous things would cause all of this to be problematic. But she is in a situation that is completely unacceptable. That is a fact that cannot be avoided in this text. So her goal, her attempt, is to flip the subject to something that no one in her understanding has any answers to. You're a prophet, you're just not mine. But notice what Jesus does with his words and his response to her. There is control to the way, what he says. 21. 
believe me woman now we've talked about the word woman before we talked about it in John chapter 2 when Jesus interacted with his mother and he called her woman and I told you not to say that to your mamas that's not great but we understand in John 2 that there's a tenderness to the use of the word there is a gentleness to the use of this word it's also applicable here Jesus has just spent time with a person that no one thinks he should spend time with. His disciples included. They're going to be baffled in a few moments. He has had a conversation with her about things that are eternal and meaningful. And in her attempt to step away from this, he gently calls her back. Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So he just said to her, you know, my story is the story of the Jewish people and your story is the story of the Samaritan people. We've never gotten along and we've never been friends, but we've always understood worship in the strictest of senses. You worship here and I worship here. But that's not the end goal. For us to have a place where we gather together. Our end goal is not to have a place where we gather together and worship. Our end goal is to declare who we worship. So she says this, he says this to her, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. He's still being very bold with her and incredibly clear. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and they will worship Him in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This bold truth of Jesus, not negated by how much he obviously cares for this person in the same way that he cares for all of us. This declaration of Jesus to this heart of this woman, saying to her, look, there's an hour coming when you're going to need to know who God is and meet with God. And it is important that you grasp who this God really is. And the goal... Is not for you to have a place that you go, but a person that you know. But she does what all of us wants to do. She just wants to disagree and let's make this a religious conversation. And I'll give you your water and you can take your wacky living water. We'll just do our thing. She says to Jesus in verse 25, I know the Messiah is coming, he, he who is called the Christ. When he gets here, he will tell us all things. I'm not convinced that she believes that. Because of the communal nature of worship. And this woman has lumped herself with the Samaritan people, but the Samaritan people have not lumped themselves with her. They've left her to be her own person. They've they've left her stranded on the outskirts of the outskirts. And she is saying religious things but that she has grown up knowing but that don't really mean much to her. If that's not like conversations that we're having, I don't know what is. But Jesus has paved the way for this conversation. And he chooses his words carefully. Because he's Jesus, he does way better than us. I 
the one who is speaking to you. I'm him. When is the last time that a conversation that we happen to have with someone who does not agree with us ended on this hopeful of a note? That Jesus is the hope of the world. Every bit of this has been built to in the way that Jesus has treated this person. I think that it, for us, it goes a little bit beyond just religious differences. We live in a, what some say is a melting pot. I think it's more like a tossed salad if we're being truthful. And I shared a quote from a missiologist two weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, on social media. And the quote was this, about the unchurched. Statistically, the unchurched lean heavily Democrat. So, and I know it's not just me talking crazy right now. If you want to reach the unchurched, maybe constant Facebook posts about how stupid Democrats are might, not be, might be a bad idea. So I thought, man, that's, that's just right. You could take away the term Democrat. You could make just words about how stupid people are that I want to know Jesus is not a good idea. I need to let you guys know about what I interacted with over these people the last week. I, I had inter, a few interactions with people there. I had text message conversations that followed up about this with people that I this bothered. I, I had... Uh, I noticed where people would share this and it wasn't just one side or the it wasn't just people who said I can't believe you would say Democrats are cool I never said Democrats were cool it was a conversation that turned into I can't believe that you would say that an unchurched person is not a Christian as well as but do you know how bad the Democrats are I've never ever there's nothing that that man said not a word of what he said that had anything to do with our, the way that we verbalize our beliefs on policies, the way that we look at, at the negative, cons, negative things that various groups stand for, it caused this division and this tension just because we would address for someone an idol. Friends, Jesus here, in the way that he interacts with her, sees the main thing, the ultimate thing. She's trying to get caught up in every other bit of conversation that she can have as to avoid what's being presented. Yet Jesus has gently, still boldly, said to her, in fullness, There is one hope of the world, and that's me. And do you see her heart? When we keep reading the text in verse 27, this affects her. 
Now this is part of God's grand gospel design, but it's also an immediate, intentional conversation that the Savior has, and the way that He chooses to have it should model for us how to interact with people who we disagree with, because our hope is not that they would agree with us. Our hope is that they would believe in Jesus. Just then, His disciples arrived, and they were amazed that He was talking to this woman. Yet no one said, "Why? what do you want? Why are you talking to her? Here's why. Because for him to talk to her, it almost makes him unclean. And if he's drinking from her water ladle, he is unclean. But they've hitched their wagon to him. But the woman, verse 28, she left her water jar. And she went into town and she told everybody. I want you to come see a man who told me everything. So please notice two things that have happened here. She's at the well by herself at noon because she doesn't want to interact with anybody. And the whole reason she was at the well was to get water. It's such a big deal. She just leaves her water jar behind. All of this is paved by the way that Jesus spends time with her. And if I'm going to be gentle in a way that boldly declares truth, it should be a really, it's a really good model for me. I hope that we as believers in Jesus would see that the truth that he presents is presented in this incredibly helpful way. Where Jesus considers her after humbling himself and he uses intentional words to convey this message and that message comes down to it. Not the one talking to you. I'm the one who is the savior of the world. That's me. I hope that we will do our best to not build barriers between being able to declare that truth and anything else by the way that we interact with others. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? We're going to take communion in a moment. That's our response for for today. If you're here and you've never placed your faith in Christ, I, I want you to know that every word that Jesus chooses to say here is to show this woman that he's the hope of the world. And that has not changed. The immediate conversation that he has with her is the same conversation that we as believers are to be having with lost people. That Jesus is the Savior of the world. And if you've never placed your trust in Jesus, He's offering salvation to you. Seeing every sin that you have, knowing every question that you have, and wading through those things. Because your hope is not... In anything that you do, in anything that you choose not to do, it is in everything that God has done for you in Jesus. We're going to take communion as as a faith family this morning. And that it's at tables around the room. 
But before you jump up and just grab the cracker and drink the juice, I would encourage you to think through this. There is a weight to it. Because every time we take this cracker and drink this juice, what we're saying is what we have said here, that we believe that Jesus is the one who saves the world. And he gently met us, and the way that he gently met us, he chooses to to still declare boldly who he is as he seeks to make himself known to other people. So you feel free to get your communion and take it at your own speed this morning. As we as a family celebrate together that the Savior of the world is Jesus and his body was broken and his blood was shed for us. If you need me, I'm at the back, my back right hand, your back left hand corner of the room. We thank you, Lord. And as we move toward this time of considering what you've done on the cross, I pray that our hearts and minds will be that we will celebrate how you met with us. Patiently, boldly, gently, declaratively, and that we'll respond to you together this morning.